Tertium Organum by P. D. Espensky, read by Alice Flanagan, Chapter 15. There is not a single side of life which is not capable of revealing to us an infinity of the new and unexpected, if we approach it with the knowledge that it is not exhausted by its visibility, that beyond this visibility there is a whole invisible world, a world of, to us, new and incomprehensible forces and relations. The knowledge of the existence of this invisible world this is the first key to it. A wealth of newness unfolds to us in the most mysterious sides of our existence, in those sides through which we come in direct contact with eternity, in love and in death. In Hindu mythology, love and death are the two phases of one deity. Shiva, the god of creative force of nature, who is worshipped in his symbol of the lingam, and at the same time the god of violent death, of murder and destruction. His wife is Pavati, goddess of beauty, love and happiness, and she is also Kali and Durga, goddess of evil, of misfortune, of sickness and of death. Together Shiva and Kali are the gods of wisdom, the gods of the knowledge of good and evil. In the beginning of his book, The Drama of Life and Death, Edward Carpenter very well defines our relation to these deeply incomprehensible and enigmatical sides of existence. And Dispensky quotes, Love and death move through this world of ours like things apart, underrunning it truly and everywhere present, yet seeming to belong to some other mode of existence. And further, he quotes, These figures, love and death, move through the world like closest friends indeed, never far apart, and together dominating it in a kind of triumphant superiority, and like bitterest enemies, dogging each other's footsteps, undoing each other's work, fighting for the bodies and souls of mankind. End of quote. And Dispensky continues. In these few words is shown the contents of the enigma which confronts us, encompasses us, creates and annihilates us. But man's relation to the two aspects of this enigma are not identical. Strange as it may seem, the face of death has ever been more attractive to the mystical imagination of men than the face of love. There have always been many attempts to understand and define the hidden meaning of death. All religions, all religious doctrines, begin with giving to man this or that idea about death. It is impossible to construct any system of world contemplation without some definition of death, and there are numerous systems, such as contemporary spiritualism, which consist almost entirely of views upon death, of doctrines about death, and post-mortem existence. And in brackets we have, in one of these articles, V.V. Rosanoff, and that's asterisked, a Russian journalist and author, observes that all religions consist in substance of teachings about death, and that is the end of the brackets. But the problem of love, in the contemporary way of looking at the world, is regarded as something given, as something already understood and known. Different systems contribute little that is enlightening to the understanding of love. So, although in reality love is for us the same enigma as is death, yet for some strange reason we think about it less. We seem to have developed certain cut and dried standards in regard to the understanding of love, and men thoughtlessly accept this as the standard. Art, which from its very nature should have much to say on the subject, gives a great deal of attention to love. Love ever has been, and perhaps still is, the principal theme of art. But even art chiefly confines itself merely to descriptions and to the psychological analysis of love, seldom touching on those infinite and eternal depths which love contains for man. 
If, for convenience in reasoning, we shall accept the division of man and the world into three planes, material, psychic and spiritual, then we may say that all the current understandings of love are confined to the material plane. Art deals with love on the material and psychic planes, while only as a rare exception do philosophy and art rise to the spiritual plane in the understanding of love. It is commonly assumed that love does not reach the spiritual plane and even hinders the spiritual evolution. It is regarded as an obstacle standing between man and his spiritual evolution. From this point of view, the denial of love and its repression, which is regarded as the overcoming of the flesh, conduces to spiritual development. Humanity has had far other understandings of love, but for the most part they are lost and forgotten, and contemporary thought of the most diverse shades does not comprehend, even by flashes, the most important aspect of love, its mystical and religious content. The chief cause of this condition of things lies in the fact that the two great religions which embrace the majority of humankind, Christianity and Buddhism, deal with love negatively, as a deplorable necessity of physical existence, and as a phenomenon of a lower order of comparison with spiritual aspirations, with which it is assumed to interfere. This view, millenniums old, has inevitably affected the most various models of world contemplation. Moreover, during the last few centuries, a growing materialism has cheapened love in men's minds even more, degrading it to a material fact with material consequences, which fact is on the level with other psychological functions of the organism. As a result of such direction of thought, of such a warped point of view, contemporary humanity has almost entirely lost the spiritual understanding of love. So that in our time, men understand love as a common, everyday manner of life, they understand it as a psychological phenomenon, but all idea and sense of the cosmical content of love is anthropied in them. In the first mentioned case, in an everyday understanding of love, men strive to utilise love as an instrument or means for the settling of their lives, and in the second, they demand of love that it shall settle the affairs of their souls. But in both cases, love is burdened by purpose and problems which do not belong to it at all. In reality, love is a cosmic phenomenon, in which men, humanity, are merely accidents, a cosmic phenomenon which has nothing to do with either the lives or the souls of men, any more than that the sun is shining, that by its light men may go about their little affairs, and that they may utilise it for their own purposes. If men would only understand this, even with part of their consciousness, a new world would open, and to look on life from all our usual angles would become very strange. For then they would understand that love is something else, and of quite a different order from the petty phenomena of earthly life. Perhaps love is a world of strange spirits, who at times take up their abode in men, subduing them to themselves, making them tools for the accomplishment of their inscrutable purposes. Perhaps it is in some peculiar region of the inner world wherein the souls of men sometimes enter, and where they live according to the laws of that world, while their bodies remain on earth, bound by the laws of earth. Perhaps it is an alchemical work of some great master wherein the souls and body of men play the role of elements, out of which is compounded a philosopher's stone, or an elixir of life, or some mysterious magnetic force necessary to someone for some incomprehensible purpose. It is difficult to understand all this, and to make it seem rational. But by seeking to understand these mysterious purposes, and by departing from the mundane interpretations, man, without even being conscious of it at first, 
unites himself with the higher purposes and finds that thread which in the end of all ends will lead him out of the labyrinth of earthly contradictions. But this thread must be found first through the emotions, by direct feeling, and only afterwards by reason. And this thread will never reveal itself to a man who denies love and scorns it, because the denial of the importance and deep meaning of love always results in the materialistic view, and the materialistic view of love cannot be true. This view cannot be true because it considers love too narrowly, deduces conclusions from premises of too negligible a percentage of data based on facts, sees only in a plain section a phenomenon of four-dimensional character. Love is exactly as material a phenomenon as is the picture of a painter or the symphony of a musician. To analyse and evaluate love materialistically is precisely the same thing as trying to value a picture by its weight and a symphony by the volume of sound produced. What does the spiritual understanding of love mean? It means the understanding of the fact that love does not serve life, but serves the higher apprehension. If he is in the right relation to it, love attunes man to the note of the wondrous, strips off veils, opens closed doors. Both in the past and perhaps in the present, there unfortunately have been attempts at the understanding of love divorced from life, as a cult, as a magical ceremony, attuning body and soul to the reception of the wondrous. Love, in relation to our life, is a deity, sometimes terrible, sometimes benevolent, but never subservient to us, never consenting to serve our purposes. Men strive to subordinate love to themselves, to warp it to the uses of their everyday mode of life, and to do their soul's uses. But it is impossible to subordinate love to anything, and it mercilessly revenges itself upon these little mortals who would subordinate God to themselves and make him serve them. It confuses all their calculations and forces them to do things which confound themselves, forcing them to serve itself, to do what it wants. Although our relation to love is so naive, there is no reason to suppose that men cannot take toward it an entirely different attitude, or that they always have been or always will be completely bound by materialism, without flashes of understanding of the wondrous in love. Somewhere in the distant spaces of time stand the magnificent temples of love, there pass processions of priests and priestesses, and therein are performed the rituals of strange cults full of deep mysticism, sometimes shot through by the flaming lightnings of revelations most profound. All this is too little understood by us, and we have wandered far from the understanding of these mysteries. We have perverted them in our perception, lost the keys to their inner mystical significance. Only the religions of the Orient have preserved the living connection with the cosmical understanding of love. This religious attitude toward love, which alone can reveal its inner content, may be seen in the phallic foundation of Hinduism, in the deities of Hindu mythology, in numerous still existing ceremonies, and particularly in those secret cults which still survive in many places in India. This idea is the principal content of the mysterious Karma Yoga, to which are consecrated several temples in different parts of India, for example, the Temple of Raja from Nepal at Benares. In the Western occultism, in alchemy, in magic, is also sometimes discernible a profound and fine understanding of love, united with the search for the wondrous. But at the present time there is nothing so full of confusion as our understanding of love. We find no path among contradictions and the age-long accumulation of lies and calumnies against love nor shall we understand it until we understand its great noumenal, transcendental meaning. 
The chief error that men make about love consists in the fact that they believe in its reality and ascribe love to themselves or generally to mankind. It seems to them that love begins in them, belongs to them, ends in them. And even when they admit that everything in the world depends upon love and moves by love, they still seek in themselves the sources of love. Mistaken about the origin of love, men are mistaken about its result. Positivistic and spiritualistic morality equally recognise in love only one possible result, children, the propagation of the species. But this objective result, which may or may not be, is in any case an effect of the outer, objective side of love, of the material fact of impregnation. If it is possible to see in love nothing more than this material fact and the desire for it, so be it. But in reality, love consists not at all in a material fact, and the results of it, except material ones, may manifest themselves on quite another plane. This other plane, upon which love acts, and the ignored, hidden results of love, are not difficult to understand, even from the strictly positivistic scientific standpoint. To science, which studies life from this side, the purpose of love is the continuation of life. More exactly, love is a link in the chain of facts supporting the continuation of life. The force which attracts the two sexes to one another is acting in the interests of the continuation of the species, and is accordingly created by the forms of the continuation of the species. But if we regard love in this way, then it is impossible not to recognise that there is much more of this force than is necessary. Herein lies the key to the correct understanding of the true nature of love. There is more of this force than is necessary, infinitely more. In reality, only an infinitesimal part of love's force incarnate in humanity is utilised for the purpose of the continuation of the species. But where does the major part of that force go? We know that nothing can be lost. If energy exists, then it must transform itself into something. Now, if a merely negligible percentage of energy goes into the creation of the future by begetting, then the remainder must go into the creation of the future also, but in another way. We have in the physical world many causes in which the direct function is affected by a very small percentage of the consumed energy, and the greater part is spent without return, as it were. But of course this greater part of energy does not disappear, it is not wasted, but accomplishes other results quite different from the direct function. Take the example of the common candle. It gives light, but it also gives considerably more heat than light. Light is the direct function of a candle, heat the indirect, but we get more heat than light. A candle is a furnace adapted to the purpose of lighting. In order to give light, a candle must burn. Combustion is a necessary condition for the receiving of light from a candle. It is impossible to ignore this combustion, but the same combustion gives heat. At first thought, it appears that the heat from the candle is spent unproductively. Sometimes it is superfluous, unpleasant, annoying. If a room is lighted by candles, it will soon grow excessively hot. But the fact remains that the light is perceived from a candle only because of combustion, by the development of heat and the incandescence of the volatilized gases. The same thing is true in the case of love. We may say that a merely negligible part of love's energy goes into posterity. The greater part is spent by fathers and mothers on their personal emotions, as it were. But this is also necessary. Without this expenditure, the principal thing could not be achieved. Only because of these, at first sight, collateral results of love, 
only because of all the tempest and emotions, feelings, effervescences, desires, thoughts, dreams, fantasies in a creation, only because of the beauty which it creates, can love fulfil its immediate function. Moreover, and this is perhaps the most important, the superfluous energy is not wasted at all, but it is transformed into other forms of energy, possible to discover. Generally speaking, the significance of the indirect results may very often be of more importance than the significance of direct ones. And since we are able to trace how the energy of love transforms itself into instincts, ideas, creative forces on different planes of life, into symbols of art, song, music, poetry, so can we easily imagine how the same energy can transform itself into a higher order of intuition, into a higher consciousness, which will reveal to us the marvellous and mysterious world. In all living nature, and perhaps also in that which we consider dead, love is the motive force which drives the creative activity in the most diverse directions. In springtime, with the first awakenings of love's emotions, the birds begin to sing and to build nests. Of course, a positivist would strive to explain all this very simply. Singing acts as an attraction between the females and males and so forth. But even a positivist would not be in a position to deny that there is a good deal more of this singing than is necessary for the continuation of the species. For a positivist, indeed, singing is merely an accident, a by-product. But in reality, it may be that the singing is the principal function of a given species. The realisation of its existence, the purpose pursued by nature in creating this species, and that this singing is necessary, not so much to attract females, but for some general harmony of nature which we only really and imperfectly sense. Thus in this case we observe that what appears to be a collateral function of love, from the standpoint of the individual, may serve as a principal function of the species. Furthermore, there are no fledglings yet, and there is no intention of them, but homes are prepared for them nevertheless. Love inspires this orgy of activity, and instinct directs it, because it is expedient from the standpoint of the species. At the first awakening of love this work begins. One and the same desire creates the new generation, and those conditions under which this new generation will live. One and the same desire urges forward creative activity in all directions, brings and pairs together for the birth of a new generation and makes them build and create for this same future generation. We observe the same thing in the world of men. There too love is creative force, and the creative activity of love does not manifest itself in one direction only, but in many ways. It is indeed probable that by the spur of love, Eros, humanity is aroused to the fulfilment of its principal function of which we know nothing but only at times by glimpses hazily perceive. But even without reference to the purpose of the existence of humanity, within the limits of the knowable we must recognise that all the creative activity of humanity results from love. Our entire world revolves around love as its centre. Creation in every activity is necessarily the result of sex activity, the fruit of a conscious or unconscious union. On one side of this fact we know very well, we know that woman alone without man cannot produce children. The creative force of man is necessary. Impregnation is necessary. We know this, but we fail to recognise that all the creative activity of man comes from woman. Just as from the outer physical side, for the purpose of the birth of children, man impregnates woman, communicates to her the beginnings of new life, 
So from the inner spiritual side, woman, or the dreaming and romancing about woman, fecundates man, communicates to him the beginnings of new ideas, new intuitions. All idea, all intuitive creation of man is the result of that energy which flows from love, either secret or avowed. All creative activity is of necessity a conscious or unconscious interaction between the two sexes. Without this interchange of emotion, no creation is possible. For asexual human beings is possible only the education of the children of others. Cherchez la femme. It is necessary to apply this principle not alone to the detection of crimes, but to all culture created by man, and therefore by woman. In every creative activity of every epoch, it is possible to find the traces of the influence of the woman of that particular epoch. Muslim civilization lost its ascendancy because it deprived its women of freedom. The history of culture, this is the history of love. It is quite immaterial for the inspiration of creation that woman should know what she gives to man. On the other hand, she may have no slightest comprehension of those ideas which she arouses, for she acts by her mere presence, by her beauty, by her infinite elusive femininity, by her exposed and unexpressed desire. A woman may even neither see nor know a man, may pass him by, and nevertheless fecundate his fancy, his imagination, his creative energy. Infinitely various are the means of his fecundation of the spirit. Sometimes pleasure is necessary, and all the beauty and fullness of love, sometimes suffering, penetrating to the very depth of the soul, and sometimes crime is necessary for it, sometimes heroism, sometimes self-abnegation, self-sacrifice. Love unfolds in a human being traits of his which he never knew in himself. In love there is much of the Stone Age and of the Witch's Sabbath. By anything less than love, many men cannot be induced to commit a crime, to be guilty of a treason, to reanimate in themselves such feelings as they thought to have killed out long ago. In love is hidden an infinity of egoism, vanity and selfishness. Love is the potent force that tears off all masks, and men who run away from love do so in order that they may preserve their masks. If creation, the birth of ideas, is the light which comes from love, then this light comes from a great fire. In this eternally burning fire in which humanity and all the world are being incessantly purified, all the forces of the human spirit and of genius are being evolved and refined, and perhaps indeed from this same fire, or by its aid a new force will arise which shall deliver from the chains of matter all who follow where it leads. Speaking not figuratively but literally, it may be said that love, being the most powerful of all emotions, unveils in the soul of man all its qualities patent and latent, and it may also unfold those new potencies, which even now constitute the object of occultism and mysticism, the development of powers in the human soul so deeply hidden that by the majority of men their very existence is denied. But the obstacles of such an understanding of love are our materialism, unconscious and avowed, and those Christian Buddhistic tendencies which during the lapse of ages have powerfully affected our attitude toward the whole problem of sex. I find a very characteristic opinion on this matter in the book Liberté et Volonté by Professor Lutoslowski. He is endeavouring to prove that the solution of the problem of man striving for spiritual development consists of the denial of love. And Dispensky quotes, The sexual act releases a desire, the most turbulent and the most exalted of all desires of the body. 
that desire the satisfaction of which brings to a human being the most intense pleasure that he knows. In order to struggle against this desire, and to abstain from this pleasure, it is necessary to have a clear understanding of the incompatibility of these satisfactions with the most sublime aspirations of our being. The fact is established by observation that intensive, ascetic or intellectual activity weakens the sexual instinct, and sometimes eliminates it altogether while on the other hand, satisfaction of this instinct quenches aesthetic and intellectual inspiration. Thus chastity is the natural regime of life which is full of inspiration, and men who cannot live without the usual sexual satisfactions deprive themselves of the intimate union with the world of the invisible from which inspirations flow. And then there are several dots, and Aspensky continues the quote. That creative force which manifests in its most perfect form in art differentiates man from all beings standing lower than he, and it is necessary to pay for this force by the abstention from the most powerful of all animal satisfactions. In giving birth to children, men and women lose a certain amount of their individual power and sacrifice part of their vital forces in order to give birth to new organisms. Dot, dot, dot. So far as those who are striving towards the exalted ideas of creation are concerned, chastity is for them a prime condition. And then there are several more dots, and Aspensky continues the quote. It is necessary to dispose of that superficial argument which is usually advanced when conversation touches the foregoing theme. To the propaganda of celibacy, men retort that the accomplishment of the idea of celibacy would threaten the very existence of humanity. But we do not know at all if a humanity composed of chaste individuals would be subject to senility and death as before, because neither senility nor death have ever been proven to be the necessity of organic life. And this is Asterix by Aspensky, translated from the Russian of P.D. Aspensky. Aspensky now continues. Professor Lutoslavsky's book serves as a curious example of the manner in which the same arguments may be applied to the proof of the diametrically opposed theses. Professor Lutoslavsky is entirely dogmatical from beginning to end, and his whole book is in defence of the predetermined dogmas. Professor Lutoslavsky is defending celibacy and chastity because he needs thereby to establish the dogma of celibacy of the Catholic priesthood in the same way that he affirms elsewhere that the Poles are a nation and that the Hebrews are not a nation. In his opinion, the Poles are a nation because they have a common language and a common land, for which they strive, and the Hebrews have not. He forgets to take into consideration one little circumstance, that a little over a century has passed from the time of the partition of Poland, but from the time of the dispersion of the Hebrews almost 2,000 years have elapsed, one may accuse the Hebrews of anything, but to try and prove that they have no nationality is just as ridiculous as to affirm the senility and death have not been proven to be the necessities of life. Professor Lutoslavsky's book is like this all the way through. He calls himself a spiritualist, hurls his polemics against pseudo-mystics, but in reality he slips and falls on every step, displaying the most candid materialism and Polish Catholic i.e. more definitely, politico-clerical, propaganda which it would be possible to conduct without any spiritualism whatsoever. Lutoslavsky's views on the subject of love are lower-dimensional and materialistic. Love to him is merely satisfaction. In order to understand the extent of his narrowness, it is instructive to take up, after Professor Lutoslavsky's book, The Drama of Love and Death by Edward Carpenter, from which I have already quoted. 
being himself half ascetic and half hermit, carpenter sings of love as might an ancient Sufi. He tells truly about those sides of love, which Professor Lutislavsky represents falsely, about that regeneration which love brings, about the influx of energy, about inspiration, which are inseparably linked with love. And he tells of the necessity of an art of love, which shall bring about an attitude towards love infinitely removed from the rectilinear and primitive views of Lutislavsky. Of course, if one were to agree with Professor Lutislavsky that senility and death are not proven necessities of organic life, then it is possible to affirm anything. Professor Lutislavsky takes the same position in regard to this particular matter as does Tolstoy, namely, that if mankind denied sexual desire, nature might find some other means of continuing the species on earth. Further on, he affirms that the propaganda of posterity can be completely divorced from passion, from delight, and in this case he consciously or unconsciously repeats the words of the Judaic Code of Morality, which recognises and admits the need of conjugation in the interests of the species, but which prohibits delight, and with particular strictness prohibits a husband from experiencing delight with his own wife. This fantasism of ultra-materialistic Judaism is held up by Lutislavsky as the very crown of morality. That which humanity receives from love and through love seemingly does not exist for Professor Lutislavsky, just as it ceased to exist for Tolstoy, enfeebed by age. Love, according to Lutislavsky's conception of it, is merely conjugation. It merely uses up force. Wherever he derived the idea that realised love weakens the creative intuition is his secret. But he builds upon it and proves the necessity for asceticism, which is realised, well or ill, in the semi-monastical, but in substance political, order of Elevsis, founded by him. Generally speaking, there is nothing more two-dimensional or more cynical than the sort of moralisation which perceives in love only sin and lust. In this constitutes one's inability to take the higher viewpoint and to discover the true meaning of it all. For example, what a dark lie hides in all the moral discourses of, in italics, the Cruza Sonata, and, in italics, afterward. All this description of love in anatomical and physiological terms is the same sort of false representation as would be a description of music by a deaf man. If a deaf man should describe a piano, and should say that it is a black box on three feet, open on one side, and that people knock on it with their fingers. This would be quite an exact description. But after all, it will not explain why some weep and others laugh. In the first edition of this book, in those sketches which took place in the present chapter, among other things, I made the attempt to classify love and to differentiate between love, individualised feeling, from sexual emotion, not individualised and indiscriminating in its longing and satisfaction of the purely physical desire. But it seems to me now that this division, like all similar divisions, is unsatisfactory. The difference is not in facts, but in men. There are men who are cynical, vulgar and two-dimensional in everything they feel and do, whether it be love, dissoluteness or asceticism. Love in such men is infallibly accomplished by jealousy. It degenerates into wickedness and hatred. It leads to murder, to throwing of acid, and so forth. These men cannot comprehend a love without jealousy, and jealousy is the slayer of the sense of the wondrous in love. 
but there are other men in whom even the general and not the individualised sex attraction will be fine, full of thought, and of brief sparks of cosmical feeling. On earth there are living two entirely different races of men, and the difficulty of making psychological distinctions depends, in great measure, upon the fact that we endeavour to impose on all men common characteristics which they do not possess. For another reason, it is impossible to divide love into two classes, one, physical desire without personal attachment, and two, physico-psychical love with personal attachment. There must be recognised also the possibility of a third type of relation, in which the principal element is a conscious search for the wondrous in love and through love. For the higher type of men, love without this search for the wondrous becomes almost impossible. I have deliberately designated as cynical that moralism which sees in love merely one purpose, the propagation of posterity, or subjectively, a physical satisfaction. A purpose which should be achieved as quickly as possible, disregarding all the rest. Cynicism may be expressed not in dissoluteness only. There may be cynical moralism and even cynical asceticism, just as there is cynical dissoluteness. It all depends on our point of view of things, upon our relation to them. Cynicism is the psychology of a two-dimensional being. The dog, Kunos, is such a two-dimensional being. Two-dimensional morality will inevitably be a cynical morality. It will everywhere and in all things suspect its own tendencies because it does not know the tendencies of others and does not understand them. V. V. Rosanov has interesting things to say in the book Men of the Moonlight. In his opinion, the idea of sinfulness, the idea of abomination, the idea of asceticism arose out of sexual perversion, out of hermaphrodism, out of genandria and androgynia. And this hermaphrodism can be expressed not in anything physical, but only psychically. It can only be an hermaphrodism of the soul. And Dispensky quotes, Sodomy gave birth to the idea that love is sin. In reality, what is hermaphrodism psychologically? The tortures of Tantalus. Everything in himself and inaccessible. The next thing is the hatred of this inaccessible, terror before it, mystical horror, an abomination from which it is necessary to run away. End of quote. All this is interesting, although it sounds somewhat paradoxical. To regard love as an abomination undoubtedly implies some measure of perversion. But asceticism can be founded upon quite other motives. The fact is that in the majority of cases, love, as it exists in modern life, has become a trifling away of feelings, of sensations, and asceticism may be an escape from all that triviality. Moreover, mysticism demands solitude. It is difficult, in the conditions which govern life in the world, to imagine such a love as would not interfere with mystical aspirations. Temples of love and the mystical celebration of love's mysteries exist in reality no longer. There is the everyday manner of life, and psychological labyrinths from which those who rise to a little above the ordinary level can only desire to run away. For this reason, certain fine forms of asceticism are developing quite naturally. This asceticism does not slander love, does not blaspheme against it, does not try and convince itself that love is an abomination which is necessary to run away from. It is platonism rather than asceticism. It recognises that love is the sun, but often does not see its way to live in the sunlight and so considers it better not to see the sun at all, to divide it in the soul only, rather than receive its light through darkened or smoked glasses. 
In general, however, love represents for men too great an enigma, and often the denial of love and asceticism take on strange and unnatural forms, even with persons who are quite sincere but unable to understand the great mystical aspect of love. When one encounters these perversions of love, one involuntarily calls to mind the words of Zarathustra. And Dispensky quotes, Voluptuousness. Unto all hair-shirted despisers of the body a string and stake, and cursed as the world by all backworldsmen, for it mocketh and befooleth all erring, misinferring teachers. Voluptuousness. To the rabble the slow fire at which it is burnt, to all wormy wood, to all stinking rags, the prepared heat and stew furnace. Voluptuousness. To free hearts, the thing innocent and free, the garden happiness of the earth, all the future's thanks overflow to the present. Voluptuousness. Only to the withered a sweet poison, to the lion-willed, however, a great cordial, and the reverently saved wine of wines. Voluptuousness the great symbolic happiness of a higher happiness and highest hope. For to many is marriage promised, and more than marriage. To many that are more unknown to each other than man and woman. And who hath fully understood how unknown to each other a man and woman? End of quote. I have dwelt so long on the subject of the understanding of love because it has the most vital significance because to the majority of men approaching the threshold of the great mystery, much is closed or open to them in this way, and because for many this question represents the greatest obstacle. It is almost naive to say so much is in defence of love. Contemporary thought is not exhausted by such writers as Latovolsky and Tolstoy. There exist quite different paths of thought. But one thing remains invariable in our relation to love. We are unable to reconcile a broad and free idea of love with the idea of morality and spiritual aspirations. The result of this is either the absence of any morality whatsoever, or the limitation of love, morality hostile or suspicious, in its relation to love. I mean by morality not a code, no matter of what kind, of predetermined rules, but the inner necessity for the appraisal of one's actions from the standpoint of the higher understanding, the inner necessity for the coordination of one's actions and one's life with those ideas to which thought has attained. And the power thus to coordinate love and thought can appear in men when, and only when, they have come to understand that love is not a phenomenon of this world, and that it does not belong to them, but is infinitely itself, with which they sometimes come weakly in contact. To feel this infinity, it is necessary to understand the unreality of everything material and factual, and the reality of fantasy and the world of imagination. The material world does not exist. Any man who is able to sense and understand this will sense and understand it best of all and clearest of all in love. For that love is the most real, which is the most fantastic but it is necessary to feel and to understand what all this means. In love, the most important element is that which is not, which absolutely does not exist from the usual worldly materialistic point of view. In this sensing of that which is not, and in the contact through it with the world of the wondrous, i.e. truly real, consists the principal element of love in human life. It is a well-known psychological fact that in moments of powerful emotion, of great joy or great suffering, 
Everything happening around a man seems to him unreal, a dream. This is the beginning of the soul's awakening. When a man in a dream begins to be conscious of the fact that he is asleep and that what he sees is a dream, then he is waking up, and also the soul, beginning to be conscious of the fact that all visible life is a dream, approaches its awakening. And the more powerful, the brighter, the inner emotions are, so much the more quickly will the moment of consciousness of the unreality of life come. The purpose of love is the awakening of the soul. But to attain this purpose, the love flame must burn at a maximum of clearness and intensity. This is possible only when there are no false views upon the subject of love, and only for those who are not hopelessly sunk in materiality. Love sorts out and selects men. And this is italicised. The fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge this floor and gather his wheat into the garner. But he will not burn up the chaff with the unquenchable fire. End of italics. Love is the great sifter. Nature has many methods of sifting, and love is one of the chief. Those who are able to feel that which is not go in one direction, and those who are inept, who know only facts, in another. In love, clearer than anywhere else, are manifest the differences between two fundamental types of men, the higher and the lower race, the wheat and the tars of humanity. But that relation to love which characterises the higher race arises spontaneously only in rare cases. It usually exists but in potentiality, and may be developed or suppressed and replaced by another and inferior type. And of course the gospel of men of materialistic views, with whatever words this materialism is disguised, interferes more than anything else with this cultivation of the higher understanding of love. The reasonings of Lotovsky and Tolstoy will show how the materialistic understanding of love may limit a man. Love cannot be measured by materialistic standards, and men fatally enmesh themselves in their own imaginings and enmesh others. The question of love is too momentous, too complex, and too mystically elusive to be considered as on one plane. It is very interesting to consider love and men's relation to love in the light of that method and those analogies which were already applied to the comparative study of different dimensions. Again, it is necessary to imagine a world of plane beings observing phenomena entering their plane from another unknowable world, such as the change of the colour of lines on the plane, in reality depending upon the rotation through the plane of a wheel of many coloured spokes. The plane beings believe that the phenomena arise within the limits of their plane, from causes also belonging to the same plane, and that they are finished there. Also, all similar phenomena are to them identical, such as two circles which in reality belong to two entirely different objects. On this foundation they erect their science and their morality. Yet if they would decide to discard their two-dimensional psychology and try to understand the true substance of these phenomena, then with the aid and by the means of these phenomena they could sever their connections with their plane, arise, fly up above it and discover a great unknown world. The question of love holds exactly the same place in our life. Only he who can see considerably beyond the facts discerns love's real meaning, and it is possible to illumine these very facts by the light of that which lies behind them. And he who is able to see beyond the facts begins to discern much of the newness in love and through love. I shall quote in connection a poem and prose by Edward Carpenter 
from the book Towards Democracy. And Dispensky quotes, To hold incontinence the great sea, the great ocean of sex within one, with flux and reflux pressing on the bounds of the body, the beloved genitals, vibrating, swaying emotional to the star glint in the eyes of all human beings, reflecting heaven and all creatures. How wonderful! Scarcely a figure, male or female, approaches, but a tremor travels across it. And when on the cliff which bounds the edge of a pond someone moves, then in the bowels of the water also there is a mirrored movement. So on the edge of this ocean, the glory of the human form, even faintly outlined under the trees or by the shore, convulses it with far remembrances. Yet strong and solid the sea banks, not lightly overpassed. Till maybe to the touch, to the approach, to the incantation of the eyes of one, it bursts forth, uncontrollable. O wonderful ocean of sex! Ocean of millions and millions of tiny seed-like human forms contained, if they be truly contained, within each person. Mirror of the very universe. Sacred temple and innermost shrine of each body. Ocean river flowing ever on through the great trunk and branches of humanity from which, after all, the individual only springs like a leaf bud. Ocean which we so wonderfully contain, if indeed we do contain thee, and yet who containest us. Sometimes when I feel and know thee within, and identify myself with thee, do I understand that I also am of the dateless brood of heaven and eternity. End of quote. Returning to that form which I started, the relation between the two fundamental laws of our existence, love and death, the true mutual correlation of which remains enigmatical and incomprehensible to us, I shall merely recall Schopenhauer's words with which he ends his counsels and maxims, and Dispensky quotes. I should point out how the beginning and end meet together, and how closely and intimately Eros is connected with death, how Orcus or Amenthus, as the Egyptians called him, is not only the receiver but the giver of all things. Death is the great reservoir of life. Everything comes from Orcus, everything that is alive now and was once there. Could we but understand the great trick by which that is done, all the world would be clear. And that is Asterix, transceived by T.B. Saunders, M.A. Macmillan Co., New York. End of chapter 15